continue our studies in Matthew's gospel, let me invite you now to once again open to that gospel and this morning to open to the 20th chapter and to verses 17 through the end. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 34. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him, and he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Father, uh, give us sight today, spiritual sight, and give us to follow this Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus, when we come to verse 17 here, is about to go up to Jerusalem. He is about to go up with a group of followers to the city of the great king. And indeed, when we come to chapter 21, which we will do, Lord willing, on Wednesday night, when we come to the next chapter, we will find him making a very kingly entrance into that city. But before the processional gets there, before Jesus and his followers arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus pulls the twelve off to one side, verse 17. He calls the twelve disciples away from the rest of the caravan in order, it would seem, to prepare them for what they're going to witness in Jerusalem, for what is going to happen when they arrive in the great city. 
And what he wants to prepare them for is not the triumphal entry when they first get there, but his suffering and his death and also his resurrection. Behold, he says in verses 18 and 19, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now let's label this first portion of the sermon, suffering and resurrection. I'm going to give you three labels today, suffering and resurrection from verses 17 through 19, servanthood in verses 20 through 28, and sight in verses 29 through 34. Suffering and resurrection, servanthood, and sight. And we begin now by considering Jesus' suffering and resurrection as he speaks of it here in these first verses. Jesus wants his disciples to know what is going to happen to him when they reach their destination of the nation's capital city. He wants them to know that great suffering and even death is in his future. But he also wants them to know the triumph of his resurrection. Now, he's already spoken very plainly on these things in chapter 16 and again in chapter 17. And now he speaks plainly to his disciples once again. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And all of it happened, didn't it? It all happened, just as Jesus said. Jesus was delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they did condemn him to death, and they did hand him over to the Gentiles, and those Gentiles did mock and scourge and crucify him. And praise God, Jesus did rise from the dead. And so these words here, this prophecy of Jesus here shows us, doesn't it, that Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows what is going to happen. And that is a reminder that this is no mere man going up to Jerusalem. He is truly man, yes. He is fully man, yes. But he is not merely man. He is the God-man with exact knowledge of future events. This is the God-man making his way toward the cross. This is the God-man that these folks are following and that I urge you to follow. God, come to be one of us. And then these words of Jesus here, this telling beforehand of what will happen to him in Jerusalem, these words speak to us also of his great care for his people. Here he is preparing his disciples for the great emotional gut punch that is about to come their way in just a few days' time. And here he is also giving them hope to hold on to, reassurance for those days, those three days after the gut punch in which his body will lie in the tomb. He's giving them reassurance for on the third day, he says, he, meaning himself, will be raised up. And I believe he's telling his disciples these things because he cares for them. 
He wants to prepare them for what's ahead. He wants to prepare their hearts. Now Luke tells us that the disciples didn't get it on this occasion, but it is a great compassion of Jesus that he gave them this opportunity to get it, that he was preparing them. He cares for them. And it's a reminder that he cares for us as well. Because in this book, in the Bible, he speaks to us too. The things that we need to know. The things that we need to hear to give us hope. To give us reassurance. To prepare us for what he has for us. And indeed, as the NIV puts it, to give us everything we need for a godly life. He cares for us. And he speaks to us as well. So these words of Jesus here concerning his suffering and resurrection, they show us that this Jesus is the God-man, and they show us that this God-man cares for his people. And when we come to learn why Jesus had to go up to Jerusalem and suffer in these ways, then these words in verses 18 and 19 speak to us also, don't they, about his salvation of his people. Jesus' salvation of his people. That's why he's going up to Jerusalem for these things to take place. The very reason he goes up to Jerusalem, the very reason he is going to submit himself to all this mistreatment and eventually to the cross was to save his people from their sins, right? The very reason he's going through with these things was to serve his people, verse 28, by giving his life a ransom for many. Jesus was delivered to the chief priests and scribes. He was condemned to death. He was mocked and scourged. And he was put to death on a cruel Roman cross in order to serve his people and to give his life a ransom for many. In order to provide salvation for his own, in order to make atonement for their sins, for your sins, if you believe on his name, or if you will come to believe on his name. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He went up to Jerusalem, and he went through with all these things that he's prophesying here for the salvation of his people. That's why he makes his way up to the capital city instead of running in the opposite direction, even though he knows what awaits him there. Because he loves his people and he is going there, he is making his way toward the fate of verses 18 and 19 out of love for his people and out of a commitment to make provision for the salvation of their souls. And notice, not only is there salvation in his suffering and death, but salvation is also linked to his resurrection, to the event that he speaks of at the end of verse 19. Listen to how Paul puts it, the the connection between Christ's resurrection and our salvation. Listen to how Paul puts it, writing to believers in Romans chapter 6. Paul says, We have been buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, just as Jesus is risen, we who belong to him have new life as well. And so I just ask you this morning, 
As you consider these words of Jesus in verses 18 and 19, as you consider what he went through and what he accomplished, have you come to trust in this one? Have you come to bank your life upon this one who made such marvelous salvation provision for his people? Have you repented of your sins and entrusted yourself to this good Jesus who bought salvation for all who will do so? And if not, won't you do so today? Won't you repent of your sins today and cast yourself in faith upon Christ today if you've never done so before? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He went up to Jerusalem. He suffered and rose for the salvation of his people. So that's the first heading today, suffering and resurrection in verses 17, and 19, 17 through 19. But then we need to go on and consider servanthood in verses 20 through 28. Servanthood. Now here comes the mother of James and John with her sons by her side, and she bows down before Jesus in verse 20, and she makes this request in verse 21, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now these are the words of the mother, but it is clear both from a comparison with Mark's account of these events and from the fact that Jesus' answer in verse 22 is directed toward the sons, it's clear that those of these are, though these are the words of the mother, this is the request of her sons as well. This is James and John's request as well. They want this honor for themselves too. Maybe they put their mama up to this question, figuring it would come better from her than from them. Or maybe she wanted it just as badly as they did. I don't know. But whatever the case, and however deep mama's complicity is here, it's clear that James and John themselves want places of eminence and honor when Jesus establishes his kingdom. They want to be his right and left-hand men. They want to be his vice presidents. They want to be his chief princes. Perhaps they've been thinking about the 12 thrones that Jesus promised his 12 disciples toward the end of the last chapter and not satisfied with each of them just having a seat on one of the 12 thrones. They want to attain to the inner two. And what is Jesus' initial response? What does he say to this request? Well, he says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Verse 20, you do not know what you are asking. And in what way do they not know what they're asking? Well, it seems to me Jesus has two ways in mind here, two ways in which these men are out over their skis, two ways in which these men do not know what they are asking. One of those ways is seen in Jesus asking them if they can drink his cup. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And why would he ask that? Well, I think the idea may be something like James, John, brothers, the kingdom that I'm going to possess, the throne that I'm about to sit on is going to be reached by way of the cross. The throne is going to be reached by way of a bitter cup of suffering. Don't you remember what I just told you in verses 18 and 19 about how I'm going to be delivered 
to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn me to death and will hand me over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify me? And are you so eager to sit by my side? You don't know what you're asking. You have not counted the cost, James and John, that your request will require of you. Are you able to go the same route as me to the throne room? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you really able to suffer on your way to glory? You do not know what you are asking. But they're persistent. They're confident that they can drink Jesus' cup there at the end of verse 22. And although I highly doubt they really understand the bitterness they'll find inside, they say we are able. And Jesus actually tells them in verse 23, well, actually, you are going to drink it. My cup you shall drink. You are going to follow me in suffering. But I think his point in asking if they're able to drink the cup and in telling them that they don't know what they are asking is that they are too triumphant here. They haven't counted the cost that will be required of them in order to reign with Jesus, in order to be great in his kingdom. Now, they have left their homes and jobs and other things, chapter 19, in order to follow him, but the cost will get much higher. And they're too triumphant here. They haven't considered that reigning alongside the Jesus of verses 18 and 19 means suffering alongside him as well, drinking his cup. And so they do not know what they are asking. They haven't yet counted the costs. And I wonder if we have. I wonder if you've considered what you're really signing up for when you say that you want to follow this Jesus, when you say that you want to reign with him someday in glory. This one whom we follow, this one with whom we desire to reign, was delivered to the chief priests and condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles and mocked and scourged and crucified on his way to receiving his kingdom. And of his people, it is written, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And we must weigh these things, not to dissuade us from following Christ or from seeking his kingdom, but to make us sober about what we're really asking for when we do. For as it was for Christ, so it must be for those who follow him and who would reign with him through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Let's know what we're asking when we seek to reign with Christ. And because James and John seem not to have truly weighed these things, they do not know what they are asking when they speak of reigning with this Jesus. But then... They do not know what they're asking also because as Jesus goes on to say, to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now Jesus, as we said earlier, is truly and fully God. He has all the attributes and all the prerogatives thereof. He is God. But here is a case in the inner workings of the Trinity where it is the Father's role and not the Son's to exercise a particular divine privilege, and in this case, the privilege of assigning the seating for the two chairs on the right and left 
of Jesus' throne. To sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. And here's the thing. If it's not even the Son of God's to give, then these two sons of Zebedee need to be content with whatever places they're assigned in the kingdom. They do not know what they're asking. They do not know what an unfitting request they're making here. They're presumptuous in their prayer. And then not only are they presumptuous, and not only have they not counted the cost of what they're asking, but their request also comes from a place of great self-service. This is an incredibly self-serving request that they make, isn't it? No wonder the other ten disciples became indignant with the two brothers in verse 24. What happens in a workplace or in a classroom when one or two people are always trying to butter up the boss, are always trying to be the teacher's favorite, are always angling for preferential treatment? The rest of the office doesn't usually like those people, right? The rest of the class has it in for them sometimes. I'm not saying that... People should be indignant like that. And neither is Matthew saying that people should be indignant. The indignance itself is probably often self-serving in and of itself. But whether people should be indignant when someone is trying to push their way to the front of the line, it's usually what happens. And it happens here in verse 24. And maybe it's because of the indignance and because of the self-serving heart that can show itself in such indignance Perhaps it's for that reason that Jesus doesn't just speak to James and John here about servanthood, but he speaks also in verses 25 and following to the other ten disciples too. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Out in the world, verse 25, greatness is equated with being in charge. Out in the world, greatness is equated with being in authority, with getting people to jump at your command. And the great men of the world take advantage of such authority by making people jump, by lording their authority over people, verse 25, by acting like big shots. Greatness in the world, in other words, is self-serving. But the ethic among Christ's people, verses 26 and 27, must be different, totally different. Greatness in this realm, greatness among Christ's people is shown not by climbing up ladders and certainly not by stepping on people as you go, but greatness among Christ's people is shown by washing feet. The truly great in the sight of God are those who put others first. Those who are willing to be at others' disposal. Those who are willing to serve. Now, some such servants may indeed be in roles of authority. But they use those roles to serve people rather than to be served by people. And so they are great, not because of their role, 
Their leadership role, their authority role, they're great because they exercise that role as servants. Other Christians are in very much servant roles to begin with. They're in very sometimes menial roles in terms of worldly status, but they are great in the sight of God because their heart is simply to be a blessing to whomever it is in whose service God has placed them. Whereas a worldly person can be in a role of service and still have a heart of pride and self-serving. And so the key here is not your role. It's not whether you're in a position of authority or of servanthood so much as your heart. Do you have a heart to be served or do you have a heart to serve? Eleven of these twelve disciples were going to play a very important role. They were going to have very authoritative roles in Christ's church. But in their hearts... Though they have these high positions in their hearts, they must be slaves. In their hearts, they must be servants. And so must you, and so must I. And the example, of course, is Jesus, verse 28. Jesus himself, who did not come to be served, but to serve. Here is the maker of all that is. Here is the Son of God. Here is the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, worshipped in eternity by the angels, and yet He came to earth, verse 28, not to be served, but to serve. And of course, that is seen in so many ways in His ministry. It's seen in His compassion toward the hurting. It's seen in his association with the lowly. It's seen in his washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus' willingness to serve instead of being served is seen in his desire to keep ministering to people in Mark chapter 6, even when those people showed up seeking his help while he and his disciples were supposed to be on sabbatical. He just keeps serving. (laughs) And here in this Jesus is our example of servanthood. Here is greatness to be imitated. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And there at the end of the verse is, of course, the preeminent way in which Jesus served. By giving His life a ransom for for many by paying the price to redeem us from our sins by being willing to go up to Jerusalem and to go up to that cross that he speaks of in verse 19 and tells his disciples awaits him there that's what kind of servant he is he's willing to go and to die to pay the price for his people's sins and so we are to be willing to give ourselves up for one another as well. We know love by this, wrote the Apostle John, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That should be the upshot of what we see in Jesus laying down his life for us.
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we are to do just as he did. How are you doing in this regard? How well does your heart resonate with, or how much does it recoil from what Jesus teaches here in verses 25 through 28? Are you willing with your heart and with your actions to be a servant, to be a slave, to regard one another as more important than yourselves, as Paul put it? Is there some particular person or persons whom the Spirit is nudging you to serve or toward whom he is convicting you to have more of a servant heart? Maybe you're serving them with your actions, but your heart is really not there. Is there some repentance that he is calling you to for not being a servant in some way or other? And if you're in a role of service, if, if your lot in life is a role of service, are you content there? Content to be a blessing to those in whose, God's service, in whose service God has placed you? And if you're in a role of leadership and authority, are you intent on using that role to wash others' feet, to meet others' needs, to do others' good, rather than to get what you want? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The theme of servanthood really runs through all three portions of our passage today. It's very clear in this middle portion that Christ is teaching here about servanthood and his crucifixion prophesied in the first portion of our passage is explained here in the middle portion in verse 28 as an act of servanthood. And then when we turn to our final portion today in verses 29 and following, we find Jesus serving, do we not? Serving these two blind men in verses 29 through 34 by giving them sight. So our outline has been suffering and resurrection, servanthood, and now in the final six verses of the chapter, sight. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Now, the people in the crowd, verse 31, evidently didn't have much of a heart of service toward these two poor men. Pipe down over there, they were saying. Enough of all this shouting out. But you see, Jesus is a servant. And as a servant, he is not annoyed by their cries. He, and he's not in too much of a hurry. And he's not too self-important to stop and help these two men. This beggar Bartimaeus and his poor blind fellow. Jesus 
were told, stopped and called them while everyone else was shushing them. And I wonder if that's what I'm like. And I wonder if that's what you're like. Are we more like the crowds here with our needy neighbors and co-workers and family and friends? Are we more like the crowds with needy people in our lives or are we more like the Christ? The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? He's a servant. And of course, what these men want is understandable, right? Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And here's Jesus, moved with compassion in verse 34. Moved with compassion. And here's Jesus, not only with compassion toward these two suffering men, but also with power to do something about it, right? Power to intervene. Power to come to their aid. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Is this your understanding of Jesus? That he is moved with compassion by our troubles and that he's powerful to intervene? I hope it's becoming your understanding of him even as we unfold this final portion of our text today. And whatever the need of your heart today, I hope that Jesus being moved with compassion here and that his moving in power here on behalf of these men will move you to call out to him with them, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And if others try to shush you, I hope that the compassion and the power of Jesus on display here will move you to cry out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Is there some physical need in your life? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Is it that you need the saving of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, the free gift of eternal life? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Is there some turmoil in your family? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Is there some friend who is lost and who is heading over the cliff edge to hell if he doesn't turn back or she doesn't turn back? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on her. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on him. Is it that you need to grow, perhaps, in this area of servanthood that we've spoken of today, that Jesus has spoken of today, that you need to develop more of a servant's heart and to engage more deeply in a servant's actions? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us that we may be servants. Is it perhaps that you need to more soberly count the cost of following a suffering king? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us that we would know what we're asking. Whatever your needs, Jesus doesn't begrudge you calling out to him from the roadside of your life and crying for his mercy. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Father, thank you that your Son is a servant to us, a servant to these blind men, a servant to sinners who need salvation.
I thank you that he calls us to imitate him. And thank you that where we have not imitated him, where we have not served as we ought, that he serves us still by forgiving even that. If we will confess and repent and believe on his name, help us to look to him. We ask in his name. Amen.